Welcome everyone to the third podcast episode where I host interviews and discussions with creators, collectors, community members, and different players in the generative art world. Today's guest is incredibly multifaceted. Clownbound is an artist, collector, and curator who specializes in the AI art field, although his collection is super diverse. Before we start, I would like to remind you about the podcast slash Twitter space dynamics. Every Monday, I'll record the Twitter space around this time, so 7, 7 p.m. UTC. You can tune in to ask questions live. So if you would like to ask questions to ClownVamp, you can use the chat icon at the bottom right and tweet your questions. If you cannot tune in, I'll share the episode as a podcast via my substack, Kalo. Dot .xyz and podcasting platforms like Apple and Spotify. Let's get started. Clown Vamp, thanks for joining. How are you today? Hey, it's good. We've talked so much online but never voice to voice. <laughs> it's also just nice to hear your voice. I'm having a wonderful day. Yeah. That's amazing. Thanks a lot for joining. I'm a big fan of you from all this stuff you're doing. I usually, I mean, for a long time, I checked your collection and, and try to find inspiration to discover artists, to see what you are up to. You have been an amazing person in the space, bringing a lot of artists to the space and to be discovered. So, yeah, it's great to have you here. Thanks, friend. That's very kind of you. I really appreciate and appreciate all the stuff you do for art and generative art. I'm excited to talk about it. Not to ruin the surprise for people, but we talked a little about the questions and the questions are really good. So I'm not, which I'm not surprised because you're very on top of things. So I'm really excited for this discussion. Yeah. And we have so much to talk about. We are afraid actually that we might not be able to cover all the questions. Let's see what we can do. So Clown Vamp, first of all, what's the meaning of your name? It's a very interesting name. Well, Clown Vamp is a character who he was born a vampire and didn't want to bite people. And so he ran off to join the circus. So that's the story and I'm sticking to it. But the background behind how it came to be was I was really fascinated by this crypto punk that had clown nose, clown eyes and vampire hair. And I thought it was just super funny. And I sort of imagined this whole thing around like, what kind of vampire becomes a clown? And so I, when I started my new account, I bought it to be the PFP for it. But then within like a week, I sort of realized that I'd rather own a lot more art and own a lot more NFTs and sold the CryptoPunk to buy art, but kept the name because it was funny and why not? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And actually, that's how you got started in the space. You were a collector and then kind of you evolved slowly. Is that right? Or when did you enter the art space? That's, yeah. So was that because of NFTs? Starting with NBA Top Shot. And then was really active in PFP summer. And then after 2021, had gotten burned out. But I'd basically fallen out of love with PFPs, but was still in love with NFTs, kind of rhymes. And so I decided I was going to start a new account to just focus on collecting art that I care about in a more meaningful way. And so that's sort of the genesis for Clown Vamp. And pretty soon after that, within a few months, I had started collecting diffusion-based AI art and just my entire world basically got rocked by it. I just was so fascinated and, you know, ended up 
getting into the beta for Midjourney and started creating it and just sort of spiraled from there. And so my journey into digital art very much started with sort of very much non-art NFTs, but come for the NFTs, stay for the art is, is very much a truism. Yeah, and, and I mean, diffusion-based NFTs, that sounds like uh, ages ago, <laughs> probably one year since that. Now, now things have evolved. And that's, that's quite interesting because it inspired you not only to collect and curate, but to create. And you have found amazing success. But before we dig into your art, can you tell us how did you got involved in the curation aspect and kind of shaping your collection and creating shows, both virtually and physically. How did that start? Yeah, so I grew up always really liking the sort of tactile part of collecting. So the Pokemon cards, I liked organizing and reorganizing. And I was a coin collector as a kid, and I had those little foldy binders that you would put the coins in and try and find all the different variations. And so I find something very you know, existentially soothing about all that. And then I think when I started collecting art immediately then you kind of want to play with your your legos right you want to you want to think about them touch them feel them and i started with i created an on cyber gallery of some of my early tezos collections and it's just so fun to think about the theme and how how to put things together and what's the story that i'm trying to tell and, and the sort of biggest thing sort of i've done curation wise was in march of this year i curated a show with super chief that was a all AI art show. So it was a group show for the art collective I'm in. And what was really fun about it was I have a lot of pers perspective on what I think is sort of um, lacking in a lot of NFT shows. And I was able to actually like make those changes and do those things. And that for me was really fun and just a way to experiment and, and think about what are stories that we can tell and what are stories that are maybe even specific to AI art. And so... The curation thing is something I really, really love. I try to every Sunday put together a tweet thread where I highlight different sort of facets of AI art. Sometimes it's specific artists, sometimes it's technique, sometimes it's history. But it, I don't know, it's like half the fun, right? Half the fun of collecting your Pokemon cards is getting to play with them and sort them and organize them and think about them. And so I, it's just part of the geekiness. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think just like the story you mentioned with your PFP, I think you're quite the storyteller and you have found ways to uh, create stories both as a curator, as a you know, collector, and as an artist. And that's why you're, in that case, the Super Chief Gallery show you curated. I remember I write the newsletter and I write twice a week and sometimes I run out of ideas. And I remember that week... I was scrolling through Twitter and I found your show. I found the, the <laughs> exhibition and boom, I had like, oh, now, and I have so much to write about. And it's because that show, you could see how you put together the pieces and each piece had a story on its own. And you were also part of the show. So is that like the storytelling part? Is it something that it's new for you or across your life you have been always telling stories writing how, how did that happen or is that something new for you yeah so just to give people context so the the show in march that we did was it's called deep fake and the whole idea was to play with the ideals of what is real 
which I think Guy has a particularly unique and fun sort of punk rock look at this kind of question. And so this is everything from you know, questions around plastic surgery to consumerism to sort of our personality and what parts of it are real versus constructed. And so people had a lot of fun with the topic. And those cools, I think when you go went through the show, there was you could sort of see how people were looking at this question from a lot of different angles and both how they approached it from their sort of art and their technique and their aesthetic, but more sort of critically to the show, conceptually too, which was really fun. And then I think in terms of storytelling, I've had a career, I've done a lot of writing, primarily on the nonfiction side. And I had only recently started getting really into fiction stuff when I found AI art. And I hadn't yet found the way I wanted to express that interest in fiction. And so part of what happened with me was I was going through this phase in my sort of writing career where I wanted to do more storytelling. I wanted to do more AI art. I, mean, I wanted to do more fiction. And AI art came about and was like, whoa, here's like this thing that marries my interests in NFTs. As a kid, I was really into photography. You know, I thought for a long time I wanted to be a professional photographer. So I had this sort of latent interest in visual media. And then I really liked the sort of, I'm a techie. And so I really liked the, the tech angle of it too and the, and the rate of change and innovation. So I think part of why I was so sucked in by AI art was I was going through this phase in my life where I was looking for more ways to express myself when it comes to fiction. I've always been really interested in visual media, but it's sort of not found the way as an adult to really grab hold of that. And then I love technology and I love all the sort of things that it can do. And so this was really perfect. And my art practice has become sort of by accident, I guess, has become really focused around using these tools to build narratives. And so a lot of the things I do have sort of a conceptual or narrative angle to them. And for me, that's really fun because I sort of think about the challenge of AI art is that you have a tool that's radically decreasing the amount of time it takes to make something. So I can create painting in 10 hours or 12 hours that would take someone by hand 100 hours and so there's a few different things you can do in that sort of math equation you can either create more art you can create really 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 complicated art or you can sort of play with the conceptual nature of that art how does this art fit within something and so for me i really enjoyed that last element which is doing this world building, doing this storytelling, doing this conceptual work, thanks to the fact that you AI art allows you to create things in a much faster amount of time. Now it's not zero hours. Creating AI art is really time intensive, but it is like, it is way faster than creating something by hand of sort of equivalent aesthetics. And so to me that like general grounding physics of AI art means that there's just more room and time. And for me, it leads a natural desire to play with the concept side of it. There are a few things. There are many challenges when you create AI art. But as you said, we already mentioned how the storytelling part, the conceptual part is key. That's something you need to, to have when you, when you have these amazing tools that automate the process. You have done that Besides that, besides the storytelling part, you also have found a style that you can replicate 
in a way, it's not the exact same style, but I've seen, I have heard many people mentioning, oh, this is a clown vamp across different collections, even if your collections are very diverse. So what's your secret to finding this style? And is it something you try, like your collections, people can distinguish them from one another or not really, or, or you pay a lot of, of attention to that? I'd say it's something I struggle with a little bit because I'm like very, very hyper and like constantly trying new things and you know, trying to balance that desire to experiment and try something new with exploring something. And so I would sort of has developed as I have two styles that I primarily play with. One is what I call this sort of Barbie noir aesthetic, which is this pink magenta sort of illustrated sort of comic book pulp fiction cover sort of hybrid and so i have a series called detective jack i have a series called panic land that all use this um, style and i really like it because there's something sort of familiar but different about it it's this sort of very americana illustrative thing that we all can sort of wrap our head around and have some collective consciousness about but then the colors make it a lot more electric and alive and fun and just pull you in. And so I really like doing that. And the other style is this sort of varying degrees of surrealness that apply to impressionism. So sometimes it's very straight impressionism, I guess pun intended, with my last show that I did. But then also I do this series called The Truth, which is the story of an alien invasion told through impressionist art. So there there's obviously these sort of enact foes and some little bits of technology and stuff and so i sort of have those two styles that i primarily play with and i think i've been with all of that though i try to really ground it a lot in really strong concepts and narratives and so my hope is that when people sort of see the work whichever style it's in they're able to sort of see the amount of like work that i've put into the concepts and get that but it's definitely something i struggle with I wish I could just do like one style for like 10 years. That seems really great. I'm a little too frenetic for that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but also I think AI art gives you the, the chance to explore and, and try new things. And I think we should embrace that. And in a way you are doing that with your, your evolution. I remember the first collection I saw from you was Detective, Detective mm -hmm. Yak and it's kind of a story. It has seasons. Can you tell us a bit about it? that? That it's like a comic book. Am I right? Yeah. So it's Detective Jack is a choose your own adventure series. It's a murder mystery series, and so it was really inspired by my growing up. I really loved the Hardy Boys, and I really loved uh, like Goosebumps choose your own adventure book. And as an adult, I really loved things like Daniel Silver and James Patterson. These sort of formulaic-esque thrillers or not thrillers but like mysteries there's something for me at least really comforting about a patterson novel where you kind of know roughly what's going to happen and you just get to see in which way does it happen in this book <laughs> there's something i like about them. i'm a big fan yeah big they're fan really fun patterson yeah they're really fun. yeah it was like i think 15 15 16 years old and i was reading uh, james patterson stories it was crazy i don't know why i liked them but i think you you define it well. You kind of knew what, what was going to happen, but you still wanted to read it. Yeah, and he has this great breathlessness with how he writes, and he's you're really good at pacing and plot, and doesn't overdo it, also doesn't underdo it. And so 
I had all this love for all these things. And so I had been experimenting a bit with some burn mechanisms last summer before the sort of burn mechanism meta and Tezos makes it really easy to do that. And I was like, oh, I like had an epiphany one day. I was like, oh, I could do a choose your own adventure that's all driven by burns. And so the idea for Detective Jack came about where it's the story of Detective Jack Crimson, who's the uh, only honest cop in the 1960s era LAPD. He's uh, incredibly handsome, but emotion unavailable. And of course, like any good detective novel, detective is. And he is, in each season, there's sort of a mystery. And it starts with you get one piece. And then each week you get um, two new pieces. And you keep one and you burn the one you don't want. And based on the one you keep, you get two more the next week. And that goes on for a month. And so we've done season one and two going to do season three at some point and it's been super fun we've had i think the stat was like over 95 percent of people went through the entire month of burns might be like 97 percent, like something kind of crazy and the discord i have a discord called the lair which is really fun if you ever get a chance definitely go join and we have a detective jack room and people are zooming in trying to find hidden clues and talking about theories and so it's really really fun and for me now, the pressure is, I think, for the next round, I feel like I need to make the mystery even more intense. And so that's sort of my thing I'm putting on myself is to make it really intense. But yeah, so that, that's my first series. And that's in that sort of Barbie noir aesthetic that we talked about. Yeah, I didn't know about, I mean, I knew about the burning mechanism. And, and for those uh, that are not familiar with it, it's basically a way how you can burn or destroy your nft for some sort of benefit so it's it's great for artists and communities to engage with their with their collectors and i didn't know you had a discord that's uh, quite interesting so do you think clown Vamp, that that helped you for other artists that are out there that maybe haven't explored this possibility do you think that's beneficial because it's not in all your collections is it on detective jack only this sort of burning mechanism i've done burns on the truth so the truth is my alien alien story and i've done a lot of burns on that one too i think about you know i think i've spent a lot of time also as a collector i collect a lot of art now and i think that i I really like to play around with ideas around abundance and scarcity in general and i think ai art is really fertile for that but when it comes to collecting i also think those are really fun questions and i having some level of self-direction when it comes to my own collection. I like having to make decisions. I like having to make trade-offs. You know, I don't want to live in a world where I get every NFT. Like part of the part of the fun of NFTs is the scarcity element of them. And so for me, part of the the fun of it is having to make that hard decision. And with the choose your own adventure mystery, it's like part of the the, the joy of it is every, you know, sometimes the decisions that we really come to appreciate in life, they also have sort of opposing regrets that we may have also felt as a result of them. But that's part of maybe what makes them so joyful. And I think about that when it comes to what I do, which is that, you know, I want collectors to feel a sense of agency over their NFTs. I want them to be able to do stuff with them. I'm really fascinated by things like, I don't know if you saw what Patrick Amadon's doing with his doppelganger contract with Transient Labs, where you get to pick across different images, which ones you want your NFT to be. I am just sort of generally very fascinated by these questions around control 
and how those play out in your art collection. And so I've been really fascinated to watch, as I'm, I'm sure you have too, all the stuff around FX parameters and QQL and some of these ways in which they're trying to bring agency to collectors and generative art, which I don't think has necessarily um, worked exactly the way that people were expecting it to work. I think there's been some surprising sort of things that have happened there. And I'm just really fascinated by those questions. I don't have answers necessarily, but I do have a lot of questions. And so that's a lot of the stuff you see me doing with Burns or things like that is me sort of playing around with these ideas. Yes, and you build a connection with the collectors that way. They kind of have to make decisions. They have to think about your art. They have to decide which one they prefer. Do I want to burn this to get this other one? And with QQL and these other participatory experiences, it's something what's interesting about that is that it's not possible in the traditional art world. That's mm. a, a clear way how NFTs and NFT art through NFTs bring a new value proposition to art collectors, which is a mix of games, decision-making. And if you are not here for that, that's okay because you don't need to make a decision. You're not forced totally. to, to do something. And yeah, I think that's very, very interesting and i think the space will continue to move in that direction yeah. i also like the for me part of the fun of it was during the month of the season there's no ability you can't do any secondary trading so if you sell any of your pieces you don't get any future pieces from that season um or if you buy a piece it doesn't get any of the airdrops and that has plan has basically worked i think there was one secondary transaction out of like 500 plus players and so it basically worked and part of the fun of it was getting everyone to slow down and sort of enjoy the nfts and enjoy the story and if just for a moment take a step away from the financial financialization of them and i also think that's just kind of interesting too part of the fun of nfts definitely is that they're heavily quantifiable you can know if you're good or bad at collecting to some degree because the market is giving you this constant feedback loop But that also comes with all sorts of downsides and negatives. And so part of the fun of it, removing that for a little bit. And how do you deal, SoundVamp, with the communication? Because all these dynamics, making it interesting, complex, and there are many people in the space that don't have that much time. I, I get that a lot in the blind <laughs> gallery. So some people miss some drops or miss some announcement. We had some burning mechanisms incorporated. So how do you deal with that? Because it's not easy um, to keep track of everything. What has worked for you in that regard? Yeah, I think two things. One, keeping it really simple. So on Mondays, you get an airdrop. By Sunday, you have to burn one. And just repeating that over and over again. And then the other thing is having really good support. So I have an amazing team of mods on Discord. And one of them specifically, who a lot of people know is Quitters, who is anything but a quitter, although that's his name. And they helped me with tracking all of the game holders for Detective Jack and who has what and who burned what. And so they'll send me a list of, hey, these people haven't burned. And I'll just go and DM everyone by hand and just say, hey, don't forget to burn by tomorrow. And it's like slightly tedious, but that's okay. Like life doesn't have to be perfectly efficient. I'm okay with sometimes doing things that are maybe a little non-digital, if that makes any sense. 
And so, yeah. And I'm sure they like that in a way. They appreciate that you take the time to individually reach out. Hey, you need to burn or you need to make a decision. Otherwise, you won't be able to do it later. I'm sure they also enjoy that part, to be in touch with the artists behind it. Do, do you enjoy that as well as a collector when there are like different kind of events that you, you get to know the artists better? Is that something yeah, that I think kind of a, you learn? As a collector, it's super, it's something I definitely appreciate. And it's different with, with a lot of the artists I collect. There's like a broad spectrum. There's people I've become friends with. There's people who I've become friendly with but aren't necessarily friends. And that's okay too. And there's people who my relationship with them is, getting to just be a fan and appreciate their their gift but not necessarily know them and I think that's okay too obviously like anyone we always want to be able to have some sort of relationship with people whose work we appreciate but sometimes it's sometimes it's okay if that doesn't happen either but yeah I think that's one of the natures of all of our nft collecting crypto art and is that there's this closeness that is a lot easier and more intimate than in trad art and but i do think there's something and obviously even in traditional art people are always sort of fascinated by getting to know people and feeling some sense of connection right and and that takes me to your last show which i will say maybe i'm wrong but i will say was more like the traditional art way it was a physical solo show in, in new york city so that's Really exciting. The Chester Charles, that's the name of the collection. And it was a, a collaboration between Jews, Super Rare, and Transient Labs. Am I right? Yeah, so the show was basically born of this idea of exploring sort of messed up timelines. And one of the timelines that we all participate in, especially people who create AI art, is art history timeline. And in the art history timeline, there's big gaping holes and errors and missing things. And one of them is I'm gay. And when I walk through, I live in New York, when I walk through the sort of impressionist wing of the Met, there isn't a bunch of signs of gay love. There isn't, you know, there's not even really anything that homoerotic. And so that's something where one of the powers and pieces of magic around AI, something that I think is really sweet and tender, is that it allows you to remix different visual concepts. And so, for example, you can make queer impressionist art, which doesn't really exist other than a couple of very sparse examples. And so the idea for the show was to do a few things. One was to sort of emphasize what could have been, what should have been, what might have been. And to do that, I created this narrative of this fictitious artist named Chester Charles and the story of this artist who had created all of this work during his lifetime, which was late 1800s and early, early 1900s, but had never been able to show it because it, it would have been too scandalous. And the, the narrative is that we found this art a couple years ago, and in our sort of very social media age, it had gone viral, and people became obsessed with the story, and this was the first retrospective of Chester Charles's work. And in doing so, there was a bunch of things we're sort of playing with. One was 
some of these traditional art concepts like a career retrospective and there's sort of format things that come along with that. Think about the chronological order, some of the curatorial text, think about the exhibition labels. And so the idea was to use that box as a way to tell this very modern story, the story about digital art, the story about what AI can do, but it's also a story that's very much based in sort of the past and what's missing from the past. And so did a in-person show in New York. There's some pictures in my pinned post that you can kind of see. It was really fun. There was a lot of champagne. And then also did a, a virtual version on cyber, which if you look in the thread, there's a link to that you can actually walk around and see the entire show virtually with the image and all of the text. And so the show is meant to be experienced however you want. You can view it just as a bunch of aesthetic images, but you can also, and this was really cool for me in the in-person show, is you can also go through and read all the text and read the whole story and read about Chester and his friends. And so there's a love triangle, there's some drama, there's all, all those kind of things. And yeah, it was really great. It was like a totally surreal experience. And it was really lucky. It was curated by Super Rare and Transient Labs, who's a wonderful partner. And sorry, there's a siren going on because I'm in New York. I don't know if you can nope. hear it. But yeah, I'll stop <laughs> to break you from the siren. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And just two things. One, a reminder to everyone, if you have questions for Clown, Clown Vamp, you can use the chat icon at the bottom right. You can send your questions as tweets. And if you are wondering about all these collections we're talking about, all these names, we'll sh- those will be posted in the podcast episode. So don't worry, you can find all the details there. And I'm very interested because you have done, as we said earlier, many online exhibitions. And now this was like a whole new experience. And, and you did it with Super Chief, I believe. There was also a live show. Can you tell us like the challenges as an artist and as a curator when you come from the digital medium where we are used to do all this online in our laptops at home and then you go to New York City, you have a big, big room, a big exhibition stage and you have to plan so many things, as you said, like the text, all the details <laughs> of the storyline, where it will be shown. It's, it's a whole new thing where, where the art will be displayed, which one will go first. Think about the the walk that the spectators go through. So can you tell us, like, what were some of the challenges that you faced during during your live shows coming from the digital world? Yeah, so the show in Los Angeles was at Super Chief LA, which is this awesome giant warehouse. It's where we did the big group make show. And then the show in New York was at Canvas 3, which is this gallery that's really wonderful and rents out space is super rare and super cheap, which can be kind of confusing. And for the space in New York, luckily I live here. And so I was able to go. And obviously when you see a layout, you can sort of count the screens and get all that. But seeing it physically actually really shifts your perception of it. And so there's a whole bunch of interesting constraints that evolved. So one was that the Canvas 3 gallery in New York, where we had it, the screens are 90% vertical portrait 16 by 9, which is A, not necessarily the dimensions that typically art would come in. And second, when you're doing a show that's supposed to be sort of representative of a body of work, 
you, you probably wouldn't have 90% vertical portraits necessarily. And so there's some of these constraints, which then I had to think through. And luckily I was able to sort of start up front. So what I did was the sort of the entire journey of the show was basically a journey around, there's a whole aesthetic exploration, there's a narrative exploration, there's a curatorial exploration around, okay, I've started to develop these characters and ideas and themes, but which combination of images will actually work within the context of the space? And how does that work? Because I needed to show the artist developing throughout his life, like a career retrospective or the artist of the exact same style throughout his entire life would not be very accurate and it'd be kind of boring. And so all of that was really fun. There's the space had two different rooms and how do you think about those different rooms? And, and so those constraints were, I think, more fun than anything because when with digital, sometimes I think the limitless nature of it can make it a bit overwhelming. And then the other thing that was really fun was I wanted to play with this brain glitch effect, I call it, which is for me, this show came about in large part because I had been working on some sort of art experiments and I had accidentally prompted a image of a gay family. So it was two gay dads and a son. And I had meant to just, I was doing some prompting around fatherhood and this had sort of accidentally come out. And I was sort of taken aback because it was in this older aesthetic, but it was a very quote unquote modern image. And there's sort of obviously a problem with calling that modern because it shouldn't have to be, but it is. And my brain just sort of went, whoa, it just sort of glitched out. And so that glitch was part of what I was trying to also recreate for the viewer. Like I wanted you to step into this physical space and be transported to this alternative world where this happened and have to wrestle with the fact that it seems so real, but it didn't actually happen. And there's reasons why it didn't happen. And so to do that, you know, and you see this in the pictures, you can see this, but there's, there's physical exhibit labels, there's poster board, artist notes on easels, there's paper brochures, but all of that was meant to sort of further this, this weird alternative, you're stepping into the uncanny valley sort of effect. And it, and that was really fun. It worked. Some of the people who came as like plus ones to the show and Maybe they breezed past the note in the front, which was like, none of this is real. We're like, wait, this isn't real? This artist didn't exist? And that was a, a lot of the fun of the show for me was playing with those. And one of the things I did was spend a lot of time on the textures of each piece. So I have this a pipeline that I've developed and iterated and gotten advice from friends and gotten it really tight now where I'm able to create these really high resolution, highly textured AI images. So if you go to any of the images on super rare and you go to the original media file, you'll see, you can zoom in to like a crazy degree, but that was all under this intent of, Hey, these images are going to be blown up really large and they need to look like they're scans of paintings because that's the effect that I'm trying to generate. And so the whole thing was in many ways, just, you know, performance art. And that had a whole bunch of interesting constraints, which was really, really fun. I had a joy working on the whole thing. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. The amount of detail. And I mean, this was tremendous amount of work. And I wonder, how did you work alone on this? You mentioned it was curated. We mentioned a super rare and transient labs. And I wonder what what kind of support to, to throw this sort of event. I know that transient labs, they, they, they are uh, this kind of 
in between that helped to bring these projects to life. Can you tell us how was working with these yeah, you know, they were, brands? They were wonderful. I mean, both of them, for example, Transient Labs, Chris from Transient Labs, who's just a superhero, he was really helpful early on where I had had sort of a core idea, but I wasn't exactly sure how I wanted it to sort of manifest physically. And so I'd been talking to him for months and brainstorming and thinking about how to tell the story and how to make it work. And he really pushed me very hard in a good way to go bigger in terms of the scale of the story and what I was trying to sort of tell and tell the biggest version of it possible. And he set up, the Transient Lab set up the space and the, the, the contra smart contracts and everything and the physical space. And that was just a huge, huge thing. And they're amazing. And I think they just are doing really incredible work sort of enabling a lot of artists to do their best work. And then Super Rare was really wonderful. Mika and Linda, the curators there, have a really strong point of view around art and really strong roots and are able to really communicate effectively around sort of what's working, what's not working, how to give notes. And so I generated thousands and thousands and thousands of images to get to these 23. And as you can imagine, there's rounds of curation involved in that. And some of the hardest things are the things they helped me with the most, which was, hey, I have like the sort of act two of the show where you know, he's midlife, he has drama, he has these relationships. There's a couple of different directions I could take it. Which direction should I take it? And just having that sounding board was something that was really nice. I think part of what's attractive about creating art is the solitary component of it and being able to work at your own pace and in your own cocoon. But having those really smart, talented sounding boards was a really big win. So I definitely get why people end up in art groups and have collaborators and stuff. I think this to me was the ideal where I could sort of lean on smart people as much as I, as I wanted because I did like retreating into my little cocoon, but it was super helpful to be able to have a thought partner and have someone also just to push me to. Right. And, and I mean, not only it seems that they not only helped you from the logistic standpoint, also artistically. Totally. And when you get that kind of professionals, of course, helps the show in general. But you learn a lot from them for the future, especially if they are curators. You're also a curator. And that takes me to the next topic, which is MIVE. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that well. MIVE group is an AI group of artists where you, I've been told you are the leader of the group. Can you tell us a bit about that? What does it mean, MIVE? And, and what is it about? Sure. I'm definitely not the leader of it. It's too decentralized and sort of amorphous, I think, to have a leader. I did literally create group on Twitter, but it was originally, it was just a group chat that sort of spiraled out of control in a good way. But it was last year, I started collecting a lot of this sort of early diffusion-based AI art, not as much of the GAN stuff, but some of the people who were using MidJourney and Stable Diffusion early on. And I realized that a lot of these people weren't talking to each other. And so I created a group and just said, invite anyone you think is good. And we quickly sort of spiraled into like 75 members. And at some point, I think we realized, we're like, oh, wait, it's a sort of accidentally in our collective. And which was really fun. We realized it was a bunch of people who just cared about the same stuff. And so today, what it looks like, it is now not kind of in our collective. It is in our collective. And it's 75 people. 
we bring in new members when someone leaves, which oftentimes people leave because they decide they don't want to keep creating digital art. And then we vote on who to replace them. And really focused on a sort of just like having a community and having people we can talk to and ask questions and then also pushing AI art forward. And so we've done it in a few different ways. One of the main things we do is we have an art fund, which every week a different member gets a budget of Tezos to go and collect AI art from emerging creators. And we tweet about it and we store them in a permanent collection. You get that permanent diamond hands effect. And so part of when we did our group show in March is part of it. We donated money from that show to that art fund so we could actually go and then curate the show. And so, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to me. What does MAFE mean? No one knows. How do you pronounce it? No one really knows. What is the logo? Well, it's a definite copy of the Misfits logo. Someone once tweeted that as if that was making a point. I was like, no, that's definitely the point. It was like definitely meant to be exact with that. So yeah, a many that's fantastic. And, and as you said, like the part that you are supporting each other, I think that's key. And that takes me to my next question. Now, somebody that like you that have found success as an artist, as a curator, as a collector, what would be your advice for an aspiring AI artist entering the space? How, how could they start? What would be, let's say you have a friend he wants to, he's an artist, he wants to try, you know, sharing their, their art. What would you suggest to them yeah, today? Yeah, so I definitely feel like I'm still figuring it out. And I think it's changing so quickly that there's a million models of how people are sort of bringing their art out there. I think it's really amazing what Fellowship is doing with these big curated drops where they have like a day dedicated to emerging artists and they've really launch some people's careers in a way that I think is really magical. So I think the question's still evolving, which is exciting. So I'm not sure there's like a answer. The thing, you know, I literally had lunch with a friend the other day who was getting into AI art and I was talking to him about, about this. My advice to him, which was, A, become a part of the communities, go and engage, make friends, like meet people, talk to people, whether that's in person, online, in Discord, on Twitter, like, I think that's so important, especially in a field like this where everything's changing really quickly. The other thing I'd say maybe more practically is, you know, I think these technologies are moving so fast that there's a lot of open space for new ideas in sort of the point where like the technology is sort of one step ahead or maybe still a little awkward. So text to video, for example, I think if you were starting, if you wanted to start an AI or career from scratch today, probably the place where you could get the most sort of exposure for your ideas quickest is probably text to video, which I haven't minted anything in text to video. I want to at some point, but you know, I think that's an area where there's a lot of openness to new ideas and there's a lot of sort of quirkiness to how the technology works, where I think if you're able to wrangle that, And I think the same thing is about to happen with text to music and so on and so forth, text to 3D and blah, blah, blah. I think the further you go out on the sort of technology curve, the more probably fertile ground there is to get some attention for your art quickly because people are, I think, more like less used to sort of what's possible. So that maybe is my more practical advice. Is that helpful? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was looking at, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but 
rope rope oh, yeah, rope, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he shared a video i don't know if it was exactly text to video or how he made yeah, it he's done some it really was amazing AI. text to video stuff yeah and he was posting he was getting like five to ten million views or something like that yeah, on tiktok crazy. with his yeah so and he's building again stories he was sharing amazing stories so yeah totally on point i think that that makes a lot of sense exploring new technologies you define it very well what you will do but now in terms of what are you currently excited about and and i know it's hard to to answer these questions but which artists and let's start with the artists which artists are you really interested in i know you share as you said weekly these threads where you share you know emerging artists also established artists if you had to name a few of them who should people look at Oof. i mean that's really hard for me because i have like thousands and thousands of nfts and i love all of them and my interests are sort of constantly you know changing a bit and i will sort of go really deep down a rabbit hole so i'd say you know right now you know some artists who i'm would generally sort of collect sight unseen which maybe is a good way to answer that question is pale Carell, who's been doing some really amazing animated work julian picaud who's been doing this really cool sort of surrealist illustration photos on tezos who else? Daniel Bispo, who does these really amazing layered collages. Um, Anna Kondo, who does these sort of photography and photography-inspired collections, many of which have a very heavy emphasis on nostalgia, which I really, really love. Um, who else? I mean, there's a lot of people. Yeah, those are pretty good. That's a good, those are, you know, you can't go wrong with those, with those four. I'm probably collecting from like 20 people a week, so it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's an amazing list. I, again, I'll put all the details in the podcast description, so you can check the details and, and, and to find this, all these profiles. And in terms of platforms, the, the space is moving so fast. You mentioned Fellowship and Tesos. There are a couple of platforms like Object.com, FXHash, uh, SuperRare we mentioned already. Are there other platforms that you are excited about, that you're spending time there for one reason or another that uh, you think play an important role in the AI space? Yeah, I think I'm really excited about what Taj is doing with Scalda. He's working on a show so it's a new platform that's going to be sort of artist-led curation the first shows with triple zero nine who i think is in this space i think i saw him or at least he was yeah hey there you are so definitely go check out his twitter to go read more about that but i think that's coming in the next few weeks and so i'm really excited about them because they're just all super talented and love the braindrops team and love the super team i think super chief has been doing a really phenomenal job of just they have a really good eye and have been picking up really smart, really talented artists early in a really smart way. You're know, giving them really good opportunities. I've been really impressed by that. And you know, so I think we're sort of in a good way. I think we're sort of drowning in good energy. You know, Bright Moments has added AI um, mints to their shows. They did, I think, the first one in Tokyo and it went really well. And so that's been really exciting. And so... A lot, I think there's been a decent amount of sort of energy towards this question of is someone going to build like the AI platform? And 
I don't think so. I think AI art is too sort of all over the place. It's too hard to sort of wrap into a box. I think there's going to be a lot of different platforms. Like there's this team, Mprops, which is doing really cool work with generative AI. And basically what they mean by that is that it automatically diffuses mints on command. So rather than someone minting a lot of outputs and then curating them and then minting them, this is literally blind diffusing, kind of similar to how it would work in like an art blocks model for generative code-based art. So I think that's really excited. Kate Voss is also doing a similar thing there. She did drop with Ganbrood. So there's like a lot of stuff going on, yeah, um, which yes. is really exciting. I do think artists to some degree are feeling a little like, whoa. Should I do it right? Yeah. <laughs> my advice to people is always to like slow down. You're in this to, to be your own boss, right? And so it's okay to go slow. You don't have to say yes to everything. And just like, you know, trust your gut, trust what feels right. And yeah, and there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. And you just did a great drop that I collected a piece from with Blind Gallery, which was awesome. And so they're like, you know, there's so many cool things going on. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and you mentioned Bright Moments. So the next episode, we'll have Seth Goldstein. Oh, I love Seth. the founder of Bright yeah, Moments. Tom. Yeah, he'll be in the next show. And yeah, we can ask him what's his perspective on AI art and like what he has planned in the future. And also brain drops. I think I saw it today. Ivona, Ivona Tao will release a collection with them. That'll be awesome. I don't have... Yeah, that's uh, some, some exciting news. And as you said, it's like many things happening. It's hard for a platform to kind of dominate because the technology moves so fast. And then there are so many options. And now with the different blockchains, and as you said, MProps is integrated. They have this mechanism uh, where they can kind of automate the, 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 the minting. And so they build that. They spend a lot of time. They are still figuring it out to make it faster. And at the same time, other technologies emerge. And then you start to use text-to-video, as you said. So, yeah, and I think, yeah, I think I, I'm interested, too, in I feel like a lot of the AI forms of creation that we're talking about right now are sort of ports of traditional creation. So, like, text-to-image, text-to-video, text-to-audio, text-to-music. I'm also interested, I think we're really close to a sort of exponential moment where we're also going to get really new formats. And so is that sort of video games as art? And obviously we've already had that, but like in a new way, right? Where if one person can create giant virtual 3D worlds that are immersive and interactive, what does that mean for art? What does art look like? I also think we're really on the precipice of some AI native art formats that I'm really excited about and I want to play with and I want to build. Can you build, can you tell us an example? What, what do you mean AI? Um, so, I mean, an example of this right now is there's obviously you can make custom chatbots. And so I'm interested in how you can make sort of like the chatbot as art or how can you make, there's all these people now building sort of like text to skyboxes where you, you build these super immersive worlds that you can walk around and do stuff. And there's people building APIs to make it easy to bring in conversational AI into video games that you build and like all of that stuff to me are like the building blocks of new formats of art and new ways that we define creativity and can a really uniquely trained chatbot for example 
be a form of artistic expression? I would say definitely. What that looks mm-hmm. like, what the bar, the standard is probably yet to be defined, which is also exciting. Mm-hmm. But I just think we're, we're building all these Legos. And right now, a lot of these Legos look like sort of pre-AI world. And I think that's causing a lot of interesting consternation among people where they're saying, okay, well, this is it's sort of stealing photography or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those discussions need to happen. They'll continue. But I think there's this like next layer where once you have these Legos and people have built that, then what are we going to build on top of that? What's going to be the AI native formats of artistic expression? What does that look like? And I think sometimes mm. people say things, well, AI art's going to go away. It's just going to be art. And I think yeah. that's true. But I also tend to think there'll always be some leading edge of AI technology that's used artistically that's going to be expressly defined as AI art. And I think there's going to be a question for a lot of people in the next five years. It's going to be a fun question to answer, which is, do you want to keep pursuing that sort of you know, leading edge of innovation with AI in your artistic practice? Or do you want to sort of remain more committed to a specific sort of medium that maybe over time, the lines between AI photography, digital photography, film photography get blurred together, it just becomes photography but there's still people doing stuff with whatever the latest AI innovation is. So I think that dichotomy is really interesting and one that's going to keep going. Um, But I do think there's going to be a category of AI art that's going to persist basically indefinitely because these tools are going to keep having a leading edge. And wherever that leading edge is, I think humans are going to be really interested in how to creatively apply that. Well, that was fantastic. Super insightful. And we're coming to an end, but I cannot leave with, without asking you what's next. And I think you just share a bit of what's in your mind with all these Legos or all these possibilities. But is there something you have been working on recently that you want to share with us and can you share with us that you are planning to release anytime soon? I am, I am really heads down working on something that I can't announce yet. But I'll be announcing it, I think, in like a month or a month and a half. And along the way, I'm also, I have some new drops planned for the truth. But I do have a big, chonky thing that I'm working on. I just can't say anything. Physical? Uh, Oh my God, the alpha, it's leaking. The alpha's (laughs) leaking. Where is it? Oh my God, it's everywhere. No, that's amazing. So one, two months from now, I'll be paying attention. That's fantastic. And it was really insightful to have you here today. I am going to share this in a couple of days and hope to have you soon in the podcast again, Clown Bam. That was really fantastic. Thanks, Thanks for, for having your time. me and congrats on the new podcast and I'm excited to, to keep listening to it with all the cool guests you have lined up. I'm glad I was able to be the one not cool guest. That was like, I slipped in. All right. <laughs> you were the perfect one. Thanks a lot and, and have a nice day, Clown Bam. Take care. Bye. Bye.